welcome to this week's episode of the Tax Chick Podcast. And to start off this episode, I want to ask you a question. And that question is, have you written a will? A lot of people haven't. They think I don't need one. And even if you have done your estate planning, have you given consideration to the broader issues of your estate plan? Your insurance, your investments, the assets you own, Have you designated beneficiaries? Do you know what that means? I get asked these questions so often and and many times I don't get asked the question until after someone has passed away and at that point there are so few things that we can do to fix issues. So I thought it might be kind of fun to have on a special guest today in the podcast and this special guest is Christine Van Cowenberg with IG Wealth Management. Now, Christine is the kind of person that when I see she's speaking at an event, I don't even look at the topic she's speaking on. I just sign up and I go. She is a phenomenal speaker and she has a great way of taking issues involved in estate planning and probate and bringing them down to a level that everyone can see how it applies to them. And so Christine is on today and we're having kind of a real chat and our real chat is on the things that we get asked about the most when helping clients with estate planning and estate administration. So we're going to talk about beneficiary designations. We're going to talk about joint ownership of property. And we're also going to talk about the income tax liability on death because there's such a focus on avoiding the payment of probate fees. But oftentimes we forget what Christine calls the big tax, which is the income tax liability. So we're going to talk a bit about that as well. So quickly, a little bit about Christine. So Christine is Vice President of Tax and Estate Planning in the Advanced Financial Planning Department of IG Wealth Management. She obtained both her commerce and law degree from the University of Manitoba prior to being called to the bar in Manitoba and Ontario. Christine spent several years practicing tax law with a large firm in Winnipeg prior to joining IG Wealth Management in 2001. She is a member of the Canadian Tax Foundation, has her Certified Financial Planner designation, is a registered retirement consultant, and is also a trust and estate practitioner as as certified by the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners, or STEP. She has previously served on the board of STEP Canada and is a recipient of the STEP Founders Award. She is also the author of a really cool book that you should check out called Wealth Planning Strategies for Canadians, which is published annually by Thompson Carswell and is currently in its 15th edition. She has published several industry papers, including with the Canadian Tax Foundation, the Canadian Association of Life Underwriters, the Law Society of Manitoba, and the Estates, Trusts, and Pensions Journal. Christine has given lectures to numerous professional groups and is a regular media spokesperson for IG Wealth Management. Christine lives in Winnipeg with her husband and son. Christine and I have a lot of fun on today's episode, so without further ado, on to the episode. So Christine, thank you so much for being here on the podcast today. Thanks very much for inviting me. I, you know, as you know, I'm a big fan of yours and I love your podcast, so uh, it's really an honor to be invited Oh, and I'm kind of fangirling over here because I feel like you're somewhat Hollywood in the estate planning world. Oh, my gosh. In, in Western Canada. And it's just <laughs> exciting to see your face and and have you talk on this topic. And uh, 
I always enjoy every presentation that you give. And um, I think that you have the same philosophy I do about the importance of bringing things down to a foundational level for other advisors and for clients and just talking about the real issues, not talking above them. And that's what I really appreciate about you. Well, we'll, we'll try and do a little bit of that today because I do think sometimes people almost make it more complicated than it needs to be and don't realize how quickly things can go offside. Like you do really need to try and keep your estate plan as straightforward as possible because it is amazing how just one wrong move and all of a sudden you've got an explosion. Oh, absolutely. And, and I find sometimes clients don't realize about the explosion until it's too late. Well, and right. They're gone, so right? They're gone. So, and yeah. so if we can talk about it now, that's all the better. And so before we jump in though, into our topics today, I think I warned you, I always ask my guests um, the same two questions and I'm actually, I'm really curious to hear what you're going to say. So one of the questions I ask is what is your favorite podcast or what is the most recent podcast that you've listened to? The tax chick. I know. See, everyone says that. And I feel like people are going to think I paid you to say that other than my podcast, but I appreciate it. I just it. listened yesterday to your one on insurance. I thought it was really fantastic. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, no, I thought they, they did a great job and you did a great job, but I, I also like, um, the New York times sometimes the daily, I, I like oh, their podcast. Okay. So yeah, the daily is they've, they do some really good analysis of, of, uh, topics and they sort of jump right into things. So, um, I, I, yeah, I, I like that the daily. Okay. I'm going to make a note of that one. I have learned so much about different options of podcasts just by asking that question and it, it helps to expand my horizons. So then the other question is what is the emoji you use most often when texting? <laughs> Are you an emoji person, Christine? I, I feel like you would be. I, on, on occasion. Yeah. Probably smiling or laughing would be the one I, I, you know, every now and again, you're, you're crying or <laughs> I feel like I'm always doing the one with the palm on the yeah, face. The face like plant. Yeah, the faceplant. <laughs> All right. Well, then let's jump right into today's episode. So when I have heard you speak in the past, um, you've spoken a lot on the topic of sort of trying to prevent problems from happening in the estate planning context, as well as in, in some family law scenarios. And so that's somewhat what we're going to tackle today, this idea of, you know, what are some of the do's and don'ts? And so we're going to tackle three topics. So one of them is going to be beneficiary designations, some do's and don'ts for those. The next thing will be things to watch out for in joint ownership. I'm excited for that one because that comes up so often. And then the third one is, I like this, you, you described it as how to deal with the real problem. So the income tax liability that arises at the time of death. So we spend all this time talking about probate fees, but how about we just move past that and start talking a little bit about what everyone should really be worried about, which is our income tax liability. So uh, without further ado, let's jump right into topic number one. Let's talk a bit about beneficiary designations, and I'm going to turn it over to you um, to sort of start this topic. Yeah, I think that with beneficiary designations, what happens is people have sort of heard all sorts of urban myths about uh, probate fees and, you know, you want to avoid probate. And although avoiding probate is good, and uh, I certainly would encourage people to avoid probate where it's appropriate, I find that people uh, don't realize how much harm they can do by designating a beneficiary. And you need to understand that when you designate a direct beneficiary, on an insurance policy, an RSP, a RIF, a TFSA, whatever it may be, that money is going to that person. Now that sounds ridiculous because you're probably thinking, well, who, who else would it go to? But 
there are a lot of families out there who think that their will will somehow still govern the distribution of that asset. So I've got a million dollar insurance policy and I have three children, you know, I'm widowed or alone, what have you. So I'll just designate my one child who happens to live nearby and and they'll share. (laughs) (laughs) I just had that conversation with a client this, this past week. It's okay. I named this person, but they'll share it. And I said, no, they won't. No, they won't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, and you know, God forbid it's something like an RSP or a RIF where there's a tax bomb on top. So the estate gets stuck with the tax bomb because RSPs and RIFs are hundred percent taxable at the time of death, but the beneficiary receives, you know, usually the entire amount, unless mm-hmm. they're a non-resident and sometimes there's withholding, but usually there's no withholding. So, you know, if you have a $300,000 RSP at the time of death, and let's say your estate hypothetically owes $150,000 of tax. And I'm, I'm going to use, I'm going to use what I call lawyer math, which is really round numbers. <laughs> my kind of math, my kind of math. Yeah. <laughs> but so let's say you have to, you know, the estate owes 150 grand, uh, but the one beneficiary has received the 300. Now there are mechanisms to potentially get that 150 back from that beneficiary, but usually only after the estate is depleted down to zero. So uh, I think that, again, there's, there are a lot of urban myths. And I often talk about the big tax and the little tax. And the big tax is income taxes. And that is 50-ish percent. <laughs> and I know that the, the rates across Canada vary and it's graduated rates of tax. So that's the highest rate. And But you know, at the time of death, a lot of people do have a significant income tax liability. So I don't think that 50% is hugely off. Uh, the probate fees, uh, which are the little tax, those are less than 1% in every province in Canada, except for BC, Ontario, and Nova Scotia, where they're 1.5-ish percent. Okay. So, and in Manitoba, my home province, there's zero. Mm-hmm. But people still uh, get concerned about the probate process. And I realize that if you have an estate that has to go through process, you might have to, God forbid, go see a lawyer and deal with that mm-hmm. stuff, which is a pain. I get it. But I personally would never act as an exec- as an executor of an estate that didn't go through probate because yeah. that's, you know, reassurance that everything's been done properly. And yeah, it might cost you a few hundred, a few thousand dollars, you know, if, if there's probate fees and mm-hmm. potentially tens of thousands, but tens of thousands, and you're talking about an estate worth millions, like keep this in perspective, right? Like it is a tiny fee for a lot of peace of mind. And what's happening with the, uh, the beneficiary designations is, you know, hypothetically, let's go to a scenario where one of three kids was appointed. Well, those cases are just going to litigation left, right, and center. And I was reading a case recently where the judge was just beside himself because he said, okay, you saved $8,000 in probate fees by doing this, which, you know, $8,000 is, is still, uh, you know, a, a significant amount of money for some people, but for a lot of people, but they had spent 80,000 in litigation and had wow. just gotten started. So, you know, and $8,000 in probate fees, that's probably a million dollar estate. So mm-hmm. I, I don't mean to minimize $8,000, but it's on a million dollar estate, right? Yeah. If it ends up you know, costing them $200,000 to litigate that, that's 20% of the estate. And it's a lot of hard feelings, a lot of hard feelings. Like that family is ruined forever. So like they, 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 those, those fences generally don't get mended. They're just pummeled down to the ground. So I ask a lot of clients, so which what's more important, your children getting along after you're gone or saving half a percent in probate fees? Like really? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think there's a bit of a misconception 
out there about these various places where you can designate beneficiaries and what the consequence of that is. So I wonder if we should break down some of these different asset types. Like if we talk very briefly about insurance, for example, versus an RRSP, because um, I think those are those are two different things that we're worrying about from a tax perspective versus a purpose perspective. And when I think of insurance, the most common thing I hear is, oh, well, I've named this person as beneficiary. And the intent is they're going to use this money to pay off the debt of the property that's in my estate. (laughs) And so we've got a little bit of a mismatch and they're naming a beneficiary because they want to avoid probate. They want to avoid that delay and having this insurance go through the estate and they want to avoid the probate fee, but now they've given it over here, but they need it over on the other side. And, and so if we can talk about that versus an RRSP. Yeah. Overall, what I actually tell people is, you know, when you're looking at an insurance policy, or in fact, even TFSA, RSP, et cetera, and I know we want to focus on insurance first, but I will say this particular rule applies pretty much throughout. When you're looking at a contract or a policy and you see that line there that says beneficiary designation, and there's a blank line and you're like, well, I can't, I can't leave it blank. I mean, it's, yeah. it's because some people are like, well, it's, it's going to go to the government or, you know, who knows right. the, the insurance right. company is going to keep it or, you know, no one will receive it. It's going to go to your estate as the default. And that is, I think where it should go, unless you can prove to yourself why you're not causing any harm by it going to a beneficiary. And if it bugs you that it's blank, right in estate, yeah. type, you know, write down a state. And I tell people all the time, the default in your mind should be a state unless you prove to yourself and me and whoever, why it won't cause you difficulties. So just assume that a direct beneficiary designation is going to cause some fireworks unless, you know, you fall within one of a very few common situations. Mm -hmm. But as you say, like if insurance is there for the purpose of paying off debt, the estate's debt, why are you paying it to a different individual? It needs to go to the estate. And if it's corporate owned insurance for all sorts of other tax reasons, you want the corporation to be the beneficiary and you really want to talk to your advisors about who, you know, should, should be the, the owner and, and the beneficiary of that. So uh, insurance is fortunately paid out completely tax-free. And you talked about that on your previous podcast, how it is an amazing product. Uh, but uh, it, in many cases, it's a significant, like some of our clients have millions of dollars in insurance. So it needs to go to the right place. And it actually usually needs to go in multiple different directions. It's there for multiple people, or it's there for their kids. It's meant to be held in trust. And uh, actually one of the key scenarios where I say you should never, ever designate a direct beneficiary is if you're designating a minor. Uh, because then it's going to be held by the public trustee until they reach the age of 18 or 19, and then they get it completely. And a lot of clients will say, you know, that they'll have a beautifully drafted will that has a trust until they're age 30 or 35, and they've got a trustee and all that kind of stuff. And I'll say, you realize that this will is now completely irrelevant, right? Because it's all going directly to this minor. And in fact, not going to the minor. If you want to avoid the government getting involved, (laughs) you shouldn't, you know, if that's your major concern, why are you designating a minor? Because now for sure the government's getting involved. So, um, you know, be very, very careful whom you designate. Uh, For the most part, as I said, it should, the default should be a state unless you are 
in what I would refer to as a first relationship. So traditional first marriage or first common law relationship where you want everything to go to that person and it's all going in one direction and there's no kids from a previous relationship. So yes. not a blended family, unless of course you've again, have spoken to your advisor and you're saying, yeah, okay, this is for the spouse, but I got something else for the kids, right? Like you need to make sure that you've covered off both. But so traditional first marriages are usually okay. Uh, if you only have one beneficiary. So I've seen people, they'll put down their spouse and a charity. So the spouse gets 90% and the charity gets 10%, except then the spouse dies. And so now it's hundred percent to the charity, yep. right? So uh, only one beneficiary uh, and that beneficiary should be what I refer to as a grown-up. And I don't say adult, I say grown-up because, uh, you know, when I talk to clients about, you know, leaving their 21-year-old a million-dollar insurance policy, they, they lose their mind, which is, you know, I would yes. too, <laughs> you know? So then why are you designating this direct beneficiary? Oh, well, I've got this trust set up in my will. Well, then it needs to go through your will, you yes. know, like you can't have it both ways. Is it in your estate or not? Mm -hmm. That is the big question. And don't worry about the probate fees. It's a tiny price to pay. Yes. So, you know, um, if, if you've got, if you're designating one beneficiary, make sure that they're sufficiently mature, uh, not that they don't have a disability, because if they have a disability, you probably want to create what's called a Henson trust or qualified disability trust. There's other types of planning out there that you want to consider. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, make sure that you, you are very careful, make sure that the Beneficiary doesn't have creditor issues of their own mm -hmm. uh, because then you're, you're feeding it right into, into that. So um, other, if you're in, the, the three scenarios are usually if you're in a first relationship, if you have one beneficiary who doesn't have any of the caveats that I mentioned, uh, or if you yourself, you're concerned about your estate having creditors. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that's actually pretty rare because even though the estate might have creditors, the insurance is there to pay the creditors right, off. Right. So it's only if you're having, like if the estate is insolvent, right? Or if the estate is really in a, in a difficulty, I actually almost never see case law where there's a problem because the money was paid into the estate. But I see case law all the time where the money was paid to a direct beneficiary and it didn't go to the right people. So when people say they want to avoid, you know, let's say litigation and, and legal hassle and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That actually means go to the estate because <laughs> exactly. there might, you know, there's extra paperwork in, in probating estate, but hopefully it will be distributed in a much more even and fair mm -hmm. and equitable and controlled fashion. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's a great way of describing it. I like those three pointers. I'm going to remember that. Um, and then for, so we talked a bit about insurance, then I, I want to flip very quickly to RRSPs because I think there is a bit of a, the, the ones I've seen go south are the ones on RRSPs. And we've had a few in our office where we've got a little bit of a mismatch. And so the difference in the taxation on RRSPs, of course, is, is we can we can roll or we can transfer things to our spouse typically on death uh, on a tax-free basis or a tax-deferred basis. And so if you give an RRSP to your spouse, that's okay. We push the tax problem out into the future until that spouse passes away. And people seem to have this misunderstanding that you can do that with an RRSP no matter who you name. And so mm -hmm. we see people that name their children, but now we don't have that same tax deferral. And so then we have the, the tax debt in the estate, but we have the RRSP fully paid out to the child. 
usually it's a blended family. Usually it's a second relationship and kids don't like new spouse. So they're not kicking the money back in to pay the tax, which is now coming out of the spouse's portion of the estate. So I like this idea. The starting point is estate. And if you're moving off of that as a beneficiary designation, there needs to be a reason. You need to have thought it through and spoken with your advisors. And one of the other things that I, I want to mention before jumping off this topic is to make sure you actually know what your beneficiary designations are. And I'm sure, Christine, you've run into this with clients too, that you'll be in a meeting and they'll say, yeah, I'm pretty sure I did this, this, and this. Well, maybe we should just check. No, no, I'm sure. No, let's, let's just check. And then we pull it up and it's nothing like what they thought, or they've forgotten to change it after a new relationship, after the ending of a relationship, after the death of someone. So just important so, to keep in track. I don't know if you saw that case a few weeks ago out of Nova Scotia. It was very tragic. There was a gentleman who had, uh, he worked for a financial institution actually, okay. and he had saved a significant amount in his RSPs. I believe it was $600,000. Like it was a good chunk of money. Okay. He was uh, diagnosed with uh, terminal disease. So he went to uh, the his lawyer with his spouse uh, okay. with whom he had a child and they wrote up their wills so that they each would receive their entirety of the estate. And the lawyer said, okay, and how about your RSPs or whatever? And he says, don't worry, everything's going to her. Uh-huh. He passes away. Well, they pull out all the stuff and he's designated his mother as the beneficiary because that was the person that he had, you know, he married a little later in life. Sure. And so when he opened up the RSP 30 years ago, whatever it was, he had designated his mother. Now he's married. Now he has a young child. None of that money is going to his, his wife or child. And in fact, they end up with the tax bomb, like the, you know, the $300,000, you know, tax issue. So then there's, you know, a lawsuit with the mother-in-law and it was just, so tragic. And, you know, it was clearly wasn't his intention because he told the lawyer, yeah, it's all going to her, but that's not what happened. So you can see how a very tiny mistake can cause massive problems. So yes, please do check your beneficiary designation. Mm -hmm. Some of the worst litigation has been where people designated a spouse, they divorce that spouse. They're now in three relationships on, but the first spouse is still the, the beneficiary and nothing's ever been updated. So do when, when you're updating your will, check your beneficiary designations. Mm-hmm. And as I said, the default should be a state unless you can prove to yourself, you're really not going to cause any other harm. I had not heard about that case. That is awful. Yeah. And, really and, bad. you know, if, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, how do I check my beneficiary designations? Cause I sometimes get that question from clients. Um, I mean, on the, on the RSP side of things, typically you're receiving some form of statement. And so usually it will show on the top of your statement who your beneficiary is. I've also noticed that even on my own banking app, that if I go into the investments portion, it'll, it'll show on there. Um, if for the insurance side of things, usually you have an insurance advisor. And so if you're, if you can't find your most recent statement, phone up your friendly insurance advisor and say, Hey, can you send me over something confirming? So don't just do it verbally, get something in writing and have it printed out. <laughs> That's what your financial planner is for to check exactly. that stuff. And the reason why you probably didn't hear about that case is because I know Amanda, you're, a, you're very up to date on the case law and it wasn't a reported case. It was oh. uh, like a CBC type of situation okay. where the, it, it became public. Uh, but what that illustrates to me is, you know, you and I have seen all the reported cases, like the, the law reported cases, right? In, in the law reports. Uh, imagine 
multiply that by 10 as to how many cases don't even make it to court, they're still feuding and arguing, coming to an out-of-court settlement, which is what happened exactly. here. So it wasn't even a reported case, which is why you, you likely didn't see it. Yeah. It was just like, I, so I work for a financial institution. So yeah. when something like that happens, <laughs> it's like, Everybody okay, everyone <laughs> <laughs> see what can happen, you know, but it wasn't even the financial institution's fault. It was just that the person hadn't bothered to double check, mm -hmm. but it, it, you know, created a real, a real problem. Well, and you know, I think that's actually a great segue to topic two, because when we talk about things that people forget to check on, I think land ownership right away. And I had this happen not long ago too, where I had clients who owned a cabin, uh, got, love those cabin properties. And, <laughs> and they, they thought they owned it as tenants in common with some siblings. And I, I didn't believe them. I said, let's just, let's just check. And we checked and it was all joint with the right of survivorship. Yeah. And so um, I think this is another common issue. So the next thing we wanted to chat about today was the joint ownership pickles that pop up. And I mean, of course, there's the difference between land ownership and bank accounts, and there's their own little categories. And depending which province you're in, the law is different. But I think that's another buzzword or another thing that you have to be aware of as an advisor or as an individual when you're doing estate planning what is owned jointly, how is it owned, and what is the impact on your estate plan? So I'll kind of turn that back over to you. Yeah. You know, I think again, uh, from my perspective, the default should be do not add a joint owner unless you can tell me why that's not going to cause you a bunch of grief. And we can talk about the sibling scenario a little later, but I, what we're finding with a lot of clients is, you know, let's say it's mom and dad and they've got an investment account, or they're asking us about their, as you say, their vacation property, even their principal residence. Yes. They want to add their children on as joint owners to quote unquote, make things easier. <laughs> well, of course, it's all I can do not to burst out laughing because I'm like, okay, yes, until one of your children separates or divorces, at which point they're going to want, you know, their ex is going to want a portion of your house. Well, that's not what I meant. What did you mean then? You added them on as a joint owner, right? So, and there's been so much litigation over these, these joint ownership arrangements. There was a case out of BC where a mom added her son on as a joint owner. Mm -hmm. He didn't even know he was a joint oh. owner of her house. His business went under, his creditors seized, the, the, what they did was they put a caveat on the house. They, they were quote unquote, being reasonable by agreeing not to actually seize it until the mom wow. passed away. Wow. But, um, you know, the, it was put, put on title. So there's been so much case law that as, as you would know, Amanda, the, the Supreme Court of Canada, a number of years ago issued some decisions. So the Supreme Court of Canada, they're there to, to talk about big issues, but the, the courts were so bunged up with joint ownership. Mm -hmm. They finally said, we have to deal with this. Yes. And so they said, you know what, we're going to assume when a parent adds an ad, a child on as a, an adult child on as a joint owner, that the parents really, and they didn't say these, these words, but the parents didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and really, they didn't really mean to do that. And it's still part of the parents' estate. And we're going to kind of ignore it. And that the child is kind of holding it in trust for the estate. But that's just a presumption. There's still all sorts of case law now where one child is saying, no, 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 this was a gift. I'm, mama's, I'm the only one that mom and dad loved. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one who took care of mom and dad. I showed up, you know, mm -hmm. once every few months, my other, you know, like whatever it was, I, I, exactly. I, on occasion, I picked up their mail. So therefore I get the, you know, million dollar property. So, you know, there's just so much litigation over this joint ownership. And, you know, I'm, my concern is when people do this, are you going to lose your principal residence exemption? Because yes. now you've got joint owners who aren't living there. Uh, so are you going to cause yourself a tax problem? And again, it all boils down to 
the difference between the big tax and the little tax. And even going back to your comment about the beneficiary designations on the RIFs and people not understanding, well, you know, they did this to save tax, right? And now there's still a huge tax liability. Exactly. Resolving the probate fee does not resolve the income tax problem. And this is what the problem is in many cases with joint ownership. You know, people will add on a joint owner and we're saying, okay, so are you planning on triggering part of the capital gain now? Or are you triggering it later? And when the asset is going to this other person and what's going to happen? And your sibling scenario, you know, that's where you need to have a co-ownership arrangement and co-ownership agreement setting out what will happen at the date of death, who's going to receive it, who's going to pay the tax. Because understand that when you pass away, unless you're leaving assets to your spouse, that you are deemed to have triggered, you're deemed to have received fair market value for all of your assets. So whether or not you actually sold anything on the fair market, you know, on the market, which I'm assuming you didn't, mm-hmm. the date of death, you had other, you know, there were other yeah. things going on. <laughs> um, you know, then you're you're deemed to have received this amount, even though you haven't liquidated anything. And so it's usually a liquidity issue. So imagine in that jointly held you know, vacation property situation, the surviving sibling gets the property, but the surviving spouse of the, of the deceased sibling, you know, has this tax liability and how are they going to deal with that? So uh, you need to do some planning around that. And don't assume that just because you've, you know, checked off the box for probate fees that you've done anything to deal with income taxes. You've actually made that situation potentially a lot worse. Well, and I find in Saskatchewan, I mean, we've had, there's been a lot of back and forth case law on the joint title and and ownership and uh, it's resolved and it's unresolved and it's resolved and it's unresolved. I think the latest is it's resolved. And it it seems like the latest idea is because our, our system works on what they call the Torin system. Yes. Once you've added another name to registration, you have done it. It is over. It does not matter what you put in your will just because of the way our land titles are registered. And so few people understand that. And there's been all these cases of grandparents that added grandkids onto title again to avoid probate. And then they get mad at grandkid, you know, five years later because grandkid goes off to Europe or does something they're not supposed to and says, well, I'm pulling them off. And well, you can't now they're on. And, you know, what if they go now and try to mortgage the property or what if you decide you want to sell the property? Yes. Don't agree. Or, you know, what if they decide they don't want you living in the property anymore? I find that on the home quarter. (laughs) I've had parents get kicked off the home quarter. I mean, we're laughing, but it's awful, right? It's awful. All of a sudden the parents are going like, well, somebody said, I got to get out. What, what am I going to do? Well, you don't own it anymore, or you're not the sole owner. So now we've got all these pickles. And so I agree with you. I think that starting point, that default should be never to add anybody jointly to anything, whether it's a bank account, it's a piece of property, it's a car. Like, I don't care what it is, a horse, a registration for a horse. We had that happen not long ago that there was some thoroughbred horse and there was joint ownership and it was a big commotion. Um, So I think you just have to start with that position of don't add anybody. And if you're going to, well, what is the consequences? What other legal documentation do you need to add to the mix? And make sure that you've spoken with your advisor so you understand the consequences of it. Because sometimes there is a good reason for doing it. And I have seen it happen. But it's pretty rare that it's a good reason for doing it. Well, yeah. I mean, I have seen situations where people say, well, I already gave a quarter million dollars to each of my other two kids and, you know, not to this one. And so, yeah, that he or she deserves it. Well, then write that down. You know, yes. and that that is that is a very valid reason. Although, again, I think it's easier just to do through the estate and say so and so gets the first two hundred and fifty, and then the re- remainder is divided by three or whatever it may be. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I do find that 
you should be writing your intentions down and working with an advisor. It's the do-it-yourself planning, or even I'm surprised at the number of lawyers that sort of facilitate this stuff because they don't do this area of law. And so they just sort of take instructions and, you know, or people just add on a joint owner because it's through online banking or something like that. You know, like, so do speak with your financial planner, speak with your lawyer and someone, you know, someone who actually practices in estates, speak with someone who can give you some advice. If they're just saying, if they're just a note taker, yep, sure, whatever. That's not getting advice. That's just someone enabling this bad plan. Uh, But it it is, it is a big decision that people don't truly appreciate. That's a great, great thing to say, because I, I feel like I'm always trying to sort of preach on this podcast about the importance of using your advisors. And I think people don't utilize their advisors in the way that they should. And if you have a financial advisor, use them, ask them questions. And if they're not giving you pros and cons and resources, that is a red flag. If they're just sort of rubber stamping it, and that's the same for a lawyer, that's the same for an insurance advisor, that's the same for an accountant. If someone is rubber stamping it and they're not helping to check you a little bit and giving you those pros and cons so you can properly decide, then you have an issue and you need to find somebody who's going to do that for you. You don't need a yes man. You need someone who's going to really help you work through it. Because what I want to hear is when you're in my office later, I can ask you the question, well, do you know what this is for? And you can tell me, yes, I bought it for this. And here is why that makes me so happy when, when a client can tell me that, but it's so rare these days. I mean, you deserve to know why you're buying all these things and paying all these premiums. That's, that's part of, of you and part of your estate and part of your legacy. If you're paying money for it, you should at least know what you have and why. So definitely ask your advisors those questions and, and they should be prepared to answer them. Yeah, I agree. And you know, a lot of people, life is complex. I forget why I did some things in the past too. too, Right. So it's not that you have to be able to rattle it off the top of your head, but you have to be able to at least be able to confer with your advisor and go. So remind me again, why do I have this insurance bill? Mm -hmm. Because you're going to have a big tax liability at the time of death and you want to pass your business on to your kids. That's why. Oh yeah. Okay. (laughs) You know, like, Exactly. Exactly. Because I I find I do forget sometimes too where I have things or why I have them. Yeah. But at least if somebody, if somebody's keeping track and can remind you, that's the key. That's the key, which, which maybe is a good segue into our third topic, because we've been talking a little bit about life insurance and, and we've been talking about the fact that there's the big tax and then there's the little tax. And so is there, is there sort of some tips or some, some comments that you can provide that talk about big picture issues in dealing with the big tax, the income tax liability and things that people should be keeping in mind. Well, I think maybe I'll use an example of a blended family just to give a little bit of context. So you quite rightly pointed out that when a person passes away and they leave everything to their spouse, for the most part, everything can roll over and you're not going to usually have a tax liability until the second spouse dies. But when people are in blended families, they have children from previous relationships. And we actually are recommending don't leave everything to your new spouse because who knows what he or she will do with it. And I'm not, I'm not saying that they're bad people. It's just, they could live another 40 years. They could give it to their kids. I mean, right. So we often say, you know, you want to leave quote unquote enough to your new spouse, whatever that may be based on your lifestyle, but you also want to make sure that you leave something to your children from your previous relationship. Mm -hmm. And you gave that example of someone who just sort of slapped on the kids' names to the RSPs, not realizing, okay, so that happens to be one asset that's got a big tax bomb attached to it, right? (laughs) So, uh, and people don't really realize that because you're thinking, oh, I saved the tax problem there. I put on a beneficiary. You, You did not save the tax problem. 
what you need to do is sit down with your financial planner and go through, they should have software that says, okay, well, at the time of death, this is going to be your tax liability. And I mean, the big tax, not the little tax. And uh, by the way, your new spouse needs the house, needs the, the vacation or wants the vacation property or, you know, it, sometimes these people in blended families, they've been in the new, the quote unquote, new relationship for 25 years, right? It's a yes. long-term relationship, yes. right? So, you know, they, they want the house, they want the, the vacation property, they need the RSPs and the RIFs. And quite frankly, they should get them because you want them to, again, roll over on a tax or exactly. go on a tax deferred basis. So then the question becomes, you know, how do I create an estate for my children from the previous relationship? And again, doing things like just adding on a beneficiary or, or just randomly throwing assets around, it usually isn't the solution. And the same thing could be said for people who own cottages and want to add on joint owners and think that, oh, I've, I've taken care of the tax, right? No, you've not taken care of the tax. Mm -hmm. There's still a capital gains liability at the time of death. And you need to project what that is and get a good picture of what that is. Now, if you have tons and tons of liquid assets, you may not have a problem. And so you can say in your will, okay, 50% of my estate goes to my new spouse, 50% to be divided between my kids. I'm worth $10 million. Even after tax, I've got a business, whatever it may be. Great. Everyone's happy. There's more than enough to go around. But what if there isn't enough to go around? And this is where you need to make some decisions that, you know, there's really no right or wrong. Like, I can't tell you what the right amount is to leave to your children from a previous relationship. For some people, they're like, ah, $10,000. That's, that's tons. You know, right. other people, I've had clients that they're saying, what do you mean my child won't receive $10 million at the time of death? Because, <laughs> you know, there's so much tax. And I'm thinking, wow, okay, can you adopt me? But um, <laughs> in any event, like, I can't tell people what the right amount is. I can't even tell people what the right amount is to leave to their spouse, because it really does depend on standard of living and the family property rules and how, you know, how long you've been living together and that kind of stuff. But what you need to do is look at the projections. And when you realize, huh, my child's only getting a hundred thousand. And I thought they were, I, I was thinking a million. That's when there's a gap there. And again, slapping on a beneficiary or adding a joint owner, doesn't do anything for that. You need to consider insurance to fund the difference. Mm -hmm. And the great thing is, you know, as, as a tax lawyer, I just can't help myself. I mean, it's paid out tax-free, right? Like how can you get I any know. better? And yeah. when we, when we look at these projections and people say, like, I'm assuming at this point, you're at the point of life where, you know, cash flow is, is pretty good. You've, your retirement is in, in, in good order and you've got the cash flow and you're saying, how do I maximize the after-tax value of my estate? It's usually a combination of investments. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you don't invest. Yes. It's usually a combination of investments and insurance will get you the biggest bang for your buck because the insurance is the part that's paid out tax-free. Mm -hmm. And it's ironic because it's later in life where people will say, I don't need insurance. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I want to take a few minutes to explain who I am and why I started this podcast. I am a tax lawyer and I practice in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. I fell into the practice of tax law despite having a lifelong hatred of spreadsheets, math, and numbers in general. I feel pretty lucky because my day job allows me to have conversations with some wonderful people who are very knowledgeable in their fields of practice. I thought it might be fun to share some of these conversations with you. I know the tax can be complex, but there are some basic foundational principles and key information that you deserve to understand and to know. 
I hope that when you finish listening to each episode, you feel like you have learned at least one thing that will be helpful to you in your day-to-day life. And maybe we will even give you a laugh in the meantime. But enough about me. Back to the episode. You may not need insurance, but once you see the projections, you'll see you want insurance because it will produce the largest estate and will make sure that everyone gets what you intended. Well, because I think there's this misconception that a money tree just grows in someone's backyard when they die. Don't you find that? Because I'll ask clients, so how are we going to pay for that? And they kind of look at you. And, and I, I think it's because there's something on Tim Horton's coffee row in Canada that just suggests that it's all going to be fine and it's not going to be fine. And so I often say to clients, I talk about it in the concept of like buckets. I don't know if this works, but I find clients get this idea that there's these buckets in front of them. And, you know, I said, okay, here's, here's your, your liquid bucket. Here is your house bucket. Here is your investment bucket. Where do you want the buckets to go? What's the tax consequence in each bucket? And we often find that the bucket that has the liquid assets is empty. And so I say, you know, how are we going to fund the tax bill over here? Because there's nothing in this bucket. We need to fill the bucket. And I find clients need to start working through some of that because again, it's all about trying to make life better for the people left behind. Because I've had some clients that say, well, I'm dead. Like who cares? It's not my problem. Well, yes, that's one way of looking at it. But do you love your family? As if you do, you probably don't want them dealing with it. And so is there anything you can do now to make it easier for them? And there's often simple solutions to problems, Uh, just that nobody implements them. And even if you're saying, I don't care how much they receive, I don't, they don't need to receive a million. It's still making sure that whatever amount it is, is received fairly. And, you know, with the blended family scenario, the number of kids of previous relationships who are just gutted when their parent dies and a hundred percent of their assets go to the new spouse, including, you know, mom's China and and family pictures. And, you know, they don't get anything and it's just, it's heart wrenching. And, you know, you don't have to have a big estate to cause a lot of grief within a family. So it's still, you know, whatever you do have, make sure it's properly properly distributed, you know, fairly and equally distributed, but which may actually, they may not be the same thing, fair and equal, exactly. but I mean, yeah. uh, make sure that you've it's, it's as you intend and it's not, yes. there's not unintended consequences. And I love your bucket scenario because I find like, let's say with the beneficiary designation. Okay. So this money is going to go to this person, but then later it's going to be divided by three. Oh, and then later it's going to be used to pay the taxes. <laughs> oh, and then later in my will is a charitable gift or like, okay. So you can use it once. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You, you don't get to use times, it four times. <laughs> I want to buy that insurance policy because that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I wonder if you want to comment briefly on charitable donations um, before we kind of leave this topic, because I've noticed in the last, I don't know, couple of months, I'm getting a lot more questions from clients about charitable giving. And sometimes it's tied into the potential, you know, tax benefit of doing so. But other times I'm finding that they're, they're running out of other people to give their money to. And so they start looking to charitable giving as an option, but they're often very unsure of where to start. And so I will often get them to work through almost like a a needs-based analysis or, or what's important to them. So not focusing on what the names of charities are, but what is important to you in your life. And we kind of brainstorm that. And then we find a charity that matches it. But if you can give some comments on, on charitable giving, I think that might be helpful. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of people have heard that charitable giving can produce some tax benefits. I still remind clients, okay, so sure, less is going to the government, but no more is going to your other benefit, your family, right? So it's still a gift, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, if you think that you're giving a gift somehow increases the value of your estate, Mm -hmm. that's not the way it works. It can decrease the amount you pay in tax, but you are still making a gift. So your comment about, you know, easing into it. I usually tell people to almost kind of test drive what it is that you want to do and, and, you know, give a thousand dollars to a certain charity. How does that make you feel? Um, you know, get in, dip your toe into it a bit, then it's 10,000. If you're wanting, if, if, if you want the tax benefit now and you're not sure whom to give it to, there are parking lots for that. So for example, right. at IG wealth, we have a, you know, charitable foundation. You can, you can put the money there will invest it, you still get the charitable donation credit because you can only, once it's in that parking lot, you can only, it, it can't go anywhere else other than the charities, but you're just right. saying, I haven't picked the charities yet. So there are ways to just take the pressure down a little bit, because if you're having to make this one big decision, whom do I leave a million dollars to at the time of yes. death? That's overwhelming, right? So start off slow, start off, you know, like as your, your comment about focusing on the cause as opposed to the, the organization is mm-hmm. bang on, right? Like what is important to you and start getting, when I say get involved, some people get involved by volunteering, but other people get right. involved with money, right? So yeah. start making some donations, uh, see, you know, see if that, that makes you feel that you've used your money appropriately. And, and, and it's, it's part of what your, your, you want your legacy to be, and then extrapolate from there and, and go forward. But I do think that sometimes people almost pile on and make the, 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 the decision is so massive yes. all at once that it's overwhelming. And I've seen people who, you know, they can't sign their will because they can't decide who to give mom's engagement ring to or yes. something like that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, can we just look big picture, <laughs> you know? And then again, with the parking yes. lot, we often tell people, okay, look, you, know, you want to give $100,000 to a charity, put the IG Wealth Foundation in there for now. You can change it later. Exactly. You can always change it. But just put the, put a, a you know, a, and there's lots of community foundations yes. and stuff like that. I don't know in Saskatoon, we have Winnipeg foundation and yes, stuff, you know, we do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, pick a foundation and say, I'm going to park it there. Um, but then have your estate properly drafted and your, sorry, your will properly drafted with the, the distributions and the percentages. And then later on, figure out if you want to, you know, if you shouldn't be deciding who gets your Tupperware in your will. That's not what that's, it's a big picture thing, right? Exactly. I I really like that approach. That's a great way of looking at it. Well, this was fun. I I really think I'm going to have to have you back on again, because there are so many topics to break down in estate planning and estates that I feel like there's no, there's no easy to access resource in Canada right now for people who are dealing with estate planning or who are trying to administer estates to really understand what they're getting themselves into. So it is a topic that's close to my heart. I know it's close to your heart too, and something we love talking about. And thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thanks, Amanda. I'll be back anytime. I am a fangirl of yours for sure. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Well, that is all we have time for today. I hope we gave you some food for thought or at least made you smile. Please see the show notes for any resource material that we reference throughout the episode and also to find out more about today's guest. Thank you so much for listening. If you are interested in reading or learning more, I invite you to subscribe to my blog, The Tax Chick Blog, and to follow me on Instagram under the handle at tax.chick. 
A huge thank you to my guest today, and also a big thank you to my husband who created the music used in this episode. If you have an idea for a future episode or a burning question you would like to see discussed, please send me an email at thetaxchickpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, then please leave a review and click subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. Please note that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode belong solely to the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the speaker's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. In addition, the information provided and discussed in this podcast is not legal advice. We encourage you to consult with your legal advisor for specific advice.